You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, sitting alongside Ben Folks from MMA Junkie and USA Today. Ben, there's good news and bad news this week. Uh Uh-oh. Which would you like first? Give me the bad news first. The bad news is that after today, I will be out of town until next Wednesday. Damn it. What? You just, you can't let us be successful, can you? Just when we got things going, we got ourselves a sponsorship, things are rolling right along, and you just... You want to sabotage this thing. Yep. You're, you're afraid of success. That's I won't, what it is. I won't rest until the whole thing comes crashing down around our ears. Well, I guess I guess it's better for me to know that now than, you know, I was just about to invest a lot of my personal funds into this project. After this, now we, I don't have the confidence. We will be on, what, 10-day hiatus? I think we can, if you're available, we could do a show next Wednesday. What are you doing that's so great? I'm going to visit my in-laws. Oh, come on, man. Come on. You're sitting over there on the other side of the table like you didn't even notice that I got a haircut and I shaved. Listen, I Which think... Which would be a clear indicator, by the way, that I'm going to see the in-laws. <laughs> I think uh, everybody out there listening to the show is going to know, wait a minute, didn't Ben just like have a new addition to his family? His wife had a baby, and then two days later, he's still showing up and doing the podcast. Didn't even miss a fucking beat. Now Chad's going to jet off to go see his in-laws just so they can compliment his haircut and his shave uh, and leave us all behind. Well, three things about that. Number one, we all know you're an absentee father, so okay, that well, doesn't surprise anyone. It's neither here nor there. Number two, uh, I'm going to get the chance to match you on that here in a few months. As as Well, I, we probably haven't talked about it on the podcast, but my wife is also having a baby. Uh, in June, uh, a, a male child, a male, I'm told. a masculine child, just oh. like is wished in the beginning of the Godfather. Have you seen those things running around? They're savages. I know they're crazy little demons. I can't tell you how glad I am to have two girls. They're just damn barbarians. They're gonna this, that child is gonna ruin this this beautiful home you have here. Lastly, be in flames. If I recall correctly, the last couple of co-main event podcast delays have been your fault. So that's where we're at. Okay, fine, fine. Direct your angry emails and tweets to at Chad Dundas. <laughs> I'm glad that you didn't ask me about the good news because there really isn't any. It's just that we're here this week. Why would you do this? Why would you start the show this way? Just so everyone knows what they're what they're getting into. It's a downer. Well, here, this will cheer you up, Ben. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. DraftKings is America's favorite daily fantasy sports site. Uh, where you could win enormous cash prizes every time you play. It's easy. Just pick five fighters, stay under the salary cap, and you could be on your way to a serious payday. Score points for significant strikes, advances, takedowns, reversals, sweeps, knockdowns. Gain bonus points based on which round your fighters in their bouts. These are the biggest daily fantasy contests for mixed martial arts ever, and they're only at DraftKings. Don't miss out. DraftKings.com awarded over $300 million last year. How much will you win? And hey, if you're just signing up for DraftKings now, you can use the promo code CME and get yourself some free stuff. Ben, tell them how that works. Well, Chad, you hurry to DraftKings.com and use promo code CME to play Daily Fantasy MMA for free this weekend during UFC 185, and you could win your slice of $1 billion. That's a billion with a B in prizes being awarded this year. Enter CME to play for free now at DraftKings.com. 
DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. And, you know, while we're doing shameless plugs, we want to make sure that you guys go over and support the new CagePotato.com crowdfunding effort. Uh, they're good dudes at Cage Potato. Ben and I both got our starts in MMA riding over there. And right now they need our help keeping the heat and the lights on. Uh, so they started a crowdfunding effort at Patreon. Is that how you say it? Patreon or Patreon? It seems to me like it's like a play on like patronage. So, so Patreon. Patreon, do you think? Yeah. Or is it patronage? I don't know. It's one of those words I've only ever read. Yeah, you can – whatever it is, you can sign up and donate a certain amount of money there. Uh, it's not exactly like Kickstarter because I think you can you can pledge a certain amount of money each month uh, as low as $1 or $2. I also and, th- uh, then you, they've even got some prizes over there for donors if you're the kind of dude that likes to walk around with your national public radio tote bag. I, I saw that and I also saw that I believe one of the prizes for donors uh, includes a custom-made video from uh, an adult film actress. Oh, yeah. They do have an adult film actress basically on retainer over there. Which is- Although I assume – with the, the retainer part is completely fictional that, that there's no money involved. Well, I, I guess that's one of the nice things about uh, having an, an adult a friend in the adult film business is that when you need to raise some money, they could be pretty helpful. Put that on the list of stuff we need. We yeah. don't have friends in the adult film industry yet. We don't have friends yet. in the adult industry exactly. yet. Uh, the link to get to the cage potato crowdfunding thing is www.patreon.com slash cage potato. Uh, we also have music this week, Ben. This week's music comes to us from listener John Uribe and his band, the Astro Steins. They describe themselves as, quote-unquote, a rock band okay. out of El Paso, Texas. They write, some people mispronounce our name and say Astro Steins, lol. Anyway, <laughs> they're on Reverb Nation, Facebook, Twitter. They just recorded uh, three new songs that we'll be playing on the show today. Uh, and then once we get the link up at comainevent.com, we will obviously link to at least their uh, Reverb Nation uh, uh, address, which is ReverbNation.com slash Astro Steins. I got to say, it's a little refreshing to have just some music from just a straight up rock band. Like not like... Hey, I play, you know, synthesizer and an acid jazz trio uh, that's uh, all acoustic or something like just just straight up old fashioned, nothing fancy rock band. Well, you know, we have an eclectic li- listenership. And that we so do. And yet we got to so, keep these people happy, man. We're just trying to make sure all our bases are covered, including first base, the rock and roll base. That is the first base. Somewhere in that eclectic listenership, there has got to be somebody in the adult film industry. There's just got to. Well, you know what? I bet uh, we'll find out now, won't we? There we go. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, why is it so hard to imagine Rafael Dos Anjos as UFC lightweight champion? Is it because we don't think he can do it? Or because we just don't want him to. Hmm. And in round number two, UFC brass seems to love every women's strawweight fighter on the planet, except champion Carla Esparza. Can she change that this weekend against Joanna Yendratrick? Is that how we're saying that now? Yendratrick? I, you know what? I think this is one where nobody can really expect much of us. Because before we were doing, uh, what was it? Yendratrick, right? Joanna Yendrachik. Yendrachik. And now I think we've gone with Yendrachik, which. You know what you should do if you have a difficult to pronounce name is just 
tell everybody a different pronunciation every six weeks or so, just to keep us all on our toes. I think for this episode, we're going to go Yen Dreytrick. Okay, whatever. In round number three, it felt like Johnny Hendricks took this fight against Matt Brown just because he didn't want to wait around for the champion to get healthy. But now Robbie Lawler is booked to defend his title against Rory McDonald at UFC 189. So, I don't know. Whoops? Maybe? Maybe. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Master Tweet Theater and just saying stuff. But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us this week from Sean Minogue. He writes, Anderson Silva's Brazilian boxing coach, Luiz Carlos Dorea, was quoted in an article on MMAfighting.com that, quote, Anderson would never take PEDs in a dirty way and that he would, quote, never do anything to have an advantage. I'd like to know if you two are just as dumbfounded as I am with this line of thinking. I'm struggling to understand how Dorea or anyone who still defends Silva's choice to cheat could say in the same breath that PEDs are illegal, but that when Silva, Anderson Silva takes them, it's all good because he would never use them for evil stuff, like punching the sweet hell out of some dude's head. Is Dorea crazy or is he just crazy skilled in American style rhetoric? I period, E period, it's not bad if we do it since we're the good guys. Uh, this is a pretty good question. It, it I, I feel like it's both uh, dumbfounding, but also completely expected that someone would take this this line of reasoning with Anderson Silva last, what was it, last Saturday, right before UFC 184, uh, we got a report. I don't know if it ever actually happened, but it, I think it was from a Brazilian media outlet, which have been uh, shaky, I guess. That's in, one way to put in it. our industry recently, but uh, there was a report that Anderson Silva was going to cop to, quote unquote, therapeutic uh PED use, uh, steroid use that he tested positive for, um, I assume they would say while rehabbing his broken leg. So to have somebody come out and say that Anderson Silva would never take PEDs in quote unquote a dirty way to me just seems to be in keeping with that same, uh, strategy of explaining this away. Right. And, but this is not a new defense really for PED users. I mean, how many times have we heard when dudes do actually cop to using it, uh, and try to explain what they used it for? Um, rehab is the most popular explanation. I mean, it's like rehab's number one, followed by tainted supplement, uh, followed by crazy Brazilian doctor, I right. think. Uh, so it's not like, and I, I think though that like, I don't know if this is something where people are intentionally doing this like as a premeditated, uh, malicious spin on it i think that they often really believe this and you know what hey it's oftentimes it's probably true man yeah. you know like people do one of the reasons main reasons to take performance enhancers is either, either to keep yourself from getting injured or to return more quickly from injury but that doesn't necessarily make it any better i yeah, don't think the, the unstated assumption that that goes off of is that the re the only reason those are banned is for people just trying to get an edge like you're getting an edge too in your rehab. You know, the other guy, if he has an injury, he can't rehab it the same way without also breaking the rules. I mean, you both agree to these rules and that's part of it. It's not just, uh, because we want to keep people from getting super strong and scary. It's also because, uh, we feel like, you know, this is an unfair thing to use. Like, even if you were telling yourself, I'm using it to rehab an injury, but it's also like, I, did you ever read, uh, Bret Hart's, uh, Bret the Hitman Hart's memoir? Uh, I think I might have read part of it. Yeah, it comes in at like 600 pages where yeah. he painstakingly recreates like matches in like Calgary in 1981 and stuff. But one of the things that's pretty evident is at one point he's kind of talking about steroid users in the pro wrestling industry. And he has a really negative view of them that they're just trying to take this easy path to the top. But then 
he starts using it because to deal with injuries. And it's like he seems to have no internal conflict with this that hey, those other guys took it because they're they're lazy and unethical. I took it because I had a legitimate need and it was the only thing to do and I had to put food on the family for my table. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, people will always kind of do this. Like somebody else uh, who steals money is a criminal and a thief, but if you cheat on your taxes, like, hey, you're just, you know, making the system work for you, that kind of stuff. Like everybody can justify that thing to themselves. Uh, it's just like, I don't know what you expect you're really going to accomplish by going out there and saying like, oh, well, hey, no, he would never use PEDs in a dirty way. Um I mean, it's not like people are going to be, oh, okay, so we used them in a clean way. Got you. All is forgiven. So are you telling me that there's a pro-wrestling autobiography that appears to morally reveal the author in perhaps ways that he did not intend? I'm telling you that that is the primary appeal of Bret Hart's autobiography. It's probably the primary appeal of professional wrestling autobiographies, period. Unless you read the only one you really need to read. Ric Flair's. Ric Flair's autobiography. <laughs> it's so awesome. Which is just awesome from cover to cover. And when, frankly, one of the things while we're on the topic that is awesome about Ric Flair's autobiography is I, he may in fact start a chapter this way, but he just lists the years that he was on steroids. He was basically like, I used steroids in 1975, 1978, 1981, 1993, 1995, for a while in 1998 and 2001, which the best thing about reading Ric Flair's autobiography uh, Ric Flair is just gonna bounce around from one topic to the next, apparently with no editing, and it's pretty awesome. Speaking of ex-wives, that reminds me of a story about Terry Funk. That's pretty much how it reads. <laughs> next question this week comes to us from Donnie from Philadelphia, PA. He writes, Brohams! Sergio Pettis and Henry Sayudo are both debut in the UFC flyweight division this weekend. Both seem like great prospects, but both guys have had some struggles. Does either make a dent at 125? Does either challenge Mighty Mouse? Talk to me here. You know, I know it's this thing for Henry Cejudo where he feels like uh, he was unfairly kind of told that he they've given up on him as a flyweight and pushed up to bantamweight. But I thought he looked pretty good as a bantamweight. And I kind of, when I, when I watch him fight, I kind of wonder, like, do you not match up better with the champ at bantamweight than you do at flyweight? Uh, I don't know. I wonder if that's one of those things where maybe it's the wrestler mentality telling him, like, the thing to do is to get the absolute lowest weight class that you can physically tolerate, uh, and then you'll be successful. I don't know. I feel like he could be pretty good as a bantamweight. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that that's probably the wrestler mentality, just kind of trying to tell him to get as low as he possibly can to go in there and compete. And I mean, he's 5'4", so maybe that's a concern. Sure, for him. yeah. You know, maybe he ought to be at flyweight, although before he came to the UFC, he missed 100, with the 125-pound limit twice, right, in a row, once at uh, yeah. Legacy FC 24 and once at Legacy FC 27. Uh I think he, it'll be interesting to see how he does because if he does make weight at 125 and it doesn't necessarily hinder his performance in any way, uh, he probably will be a pretty exciting addition to the flyweight roster and God knows flyweight needs exciting additions right now. Um, and frankly, it needs guys who have competed at such a high level and guys that have the kind of skill set that you would like to think that he can give Demetrius Johnson a run for his money. Like, 
anybody at flyweight that can do that is like a welcome addition at this point. As far as I'm concerned, we just have to see a, can he make weight this week and B how he looks to go out there and fight Chris Carriasso, uh, UFC 185. Um, and, and then we can move forward from there. But you know, if, if Cejudo can get down and does look good, uh, I feel like he could be a force either at bantamweight or at flyweight. It seems like he this week he's kind of talking about both at the same time, but maybe he needs to decide on one. But uh, it seems like wherever he, he manages or wants to fight, if he can make weight there, he could be a force because, I mean, Olympic gold medalist, dude. Yeah, well, and he's got to know, right? Like, if you don't make weight this time, I mean, just forget it, man. Absolutely fucking forget it. Like the, no one will even want to hear that talk from him anymore. I, it was one thing when, you know, he went up to Bantamweight, won a fight and said, please, I can do it. Let me, let me take one more shot at it. If you don't get it here, man, forget about it altogether. Now, as for, as for Sergio Pettis, I mean, I am interested to see, uh, how he looks because I think that he's another guy where not only, you know, of course he's Anthony Pettis's brother. So that's always a, a fun little, comparison to make they they do look awfully similar uh but also like he's a dude with a fun fighting style and a good personality you talk about some shit that the flyweight division needs right about now it's guys like that you know he's one where you really want him to be able to to come in there and be a force and and like you said it wouldn't take much to jump up to the top of that division right now if you can make the weight and, and not lose a whole lot in the process do you see Sergio Pettis being that guy I think he could be. I mean, clearly he, it runs in the family, right? So, uh, you, you would think that big things should be expected of him. Um, especially now he kind of, he got the, his UFC loss out of the way in his second fight against Alex, Alex Caceres. Uh, the guy is still, I think, only about 21 years old. Yeah. So only 21. He's three and one in the octagon now. Hasn't made 125 since I think the middle of 2013. Uh, where he won the RFA flyweight championship, but then moved up to bantamweight after that. So hasn't made 125 in a while, but, uh, another guy that if you, if you feel like he could get down to 125 reliably, reliably, he could be a, a force there just, you know, based on athleticism and, and, uh, uh, family ties, I guess you would think. Here, let me tell you this. Sergio Jerome Pettis. Okay. So I'm going to lay a, a nickname on you. All right. Let's hear it. The bus. Oh, Jerome Pettis, the, the minibus, the minibus. Wow. I feel like there's magic happening over here. <laughs> you can have that one for free, Sergio. <laughs> Next question comes from Ross from Ohio. He writes, so seeing Jeff Curran lose this past weekend at RFA 24 was kind of sad to me, given how long I've followed his career, but it did get me thinking. Curran has talked about walking away from competition a few times and comes back with varying degrees of success. Meanwhile, Mark Munoz gets choked unconscious and before the fight talks about how he quote unquote can't give up now. Both fighters are active coaches and seem to do well at a very high level of coaching, but does being around elite competitors fuel their desire to fight again? We've all talked about the idea of fighters transitioning into coaching, judging, refing, promoting, etc. Uh, after their time in the cage is done, but is that like telling an alcoholic to tend bar? Oh, that's a good analogy. It's a good analogy and a good question. Uh, and after we got this question, I did start to think about it. And like, you can totally see how just kind of being around the fight game, not necessarily just in the gym, but like also if you're cornering people traveling to the UFC uh, and seeing fans, uh, people come up to you in hotel lobbies and bars and ask you when you're going to fight again, if you, if you are going to fight again, what's going on with you. And you kind of get that buzz again, right? Cause that like being around those events, there is a, uh, 
there is a feeling and electricity in the air that can get you. And I could see how it would be tempting for someone to think, especially being around all those people all the time to be like, Oh man, I could still do this, do this. You know, there's yeah. so-and-so I beat him in 2003. He's still here. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking that I was kind of originally thinking about it the other way. Like, Hey, maybe that could be their methadone, right? Like, you you don't have to get out of the game entirely if you're a coach and you're a trainer and you're still going to the events and cornering people. You're still in it. You know, you still are in the world where people know you and respect you and all that stuff. Um, and you can do that without getting your head beat in. Like, wouldn't that be nice? But I, I can see how that probably, you know, it may not work that way in practice the way it does, like, in theory. And I remember I was talking to uh, Danny Downs, friend of the podcast Danny Downs, about this after his retirement where he was talking about how he moved to San Diego. Uh, and I was saying, like, oh, you know, I, I used to live in San Diego and I went to college there uh, and, and no good jujitsu place if you want to go down there. And he said something along the lines of, like, yeah – I don't know if I can really do that yet because I know if I go and I start training at some jujitsu place, then I'm going to want to start training at some kickboxing place and that it's, you know, I'm going to want to take it. It's a slippery slope up to the next level again and again and again until, you know, you might find yourself right back in the same spot. And I, you know, it had never really occurred to me before he said that, like, okay, I I could see how that might happen to some guys. But with those guys who where you can have a, a future as a coach. And I mean, you have to admit to yourself that at some point, like, you know, your fighting career has an expiration date, like everybody's does. So accept that and also accept that we almost never see anyone with maybe Uriah Faber being the lone example who successfully both runs a gym and successfully runs their own fight career. Like it just almost never happens. You usually have to do one or the other or else you end up half-assing both of them, as several people have said. So with those guys, like you would like to think that they could realize like, hey, I I knew I wasn't going to do this forever. This is already a good thing I have going here. I might as well transition and put everything into that. But I could also see how they feel the same way everybody else feels where I want to get one good one. I want to I don't want to go out like that. Um, And that's the the worst. That's the the fighter's false friend right there. Right. Last question this week from Nathan Hall. He writes, who needs a win more, Roy Nelson or Alistair Overeem? Uh, I'm going to say just based on expectation and perhaps uh, potential alone, Alistair Overeem, I think, really? because uh, he's a guy that I think we feel like still could have an outside shot at being uh, a top heavyweight, a title contender. Um, he's got a couple wins now. He's two, still two and three in his last five, but he's coming off a win over Stefan Struve. Uh, Roy Nelson, I feel like we feel like we've seen the best from him and that, uh, you know, he's always going to be a delightful and uh, well-liked figure in the heavyweight division, but he's not a guy that I think anybody is looking to challenge for the title anytime soon. Whereas I think as an outside shot, Alistair Overeem still seems like a guy who could put a couple together and do that. Interesting thing about this fight to me, uh, Roy Nelson, almost a two to one underdog, which if I had 20 bucks that I never wanted to see again. I would consider putting it down on Roy Nelson in this fight because we know Roy Nelson hits hard and we know that Alistair Overeem does not respond well to getting hit hard. And I would say, hey, man, take a flyer. Take a yeah. flyer on big country. I, I would agree with you there. And I also don't think like you're not going to do uh, what Overeem did to to Stefan Struve. He's not going to do that to Roy Nelson. You're not just going to like take Roy Nelson down and be able to you know ease your way into some grounded pound from the top. So uh, – that's a good point. I was going to say, though, that because Overeem has that recent win over Stefan Struve um, and his record recently is a little better, Nelson's lost, what, three out of his last four coming off that knockout loss to Mark Hunt. Uh, you know the UFC is, is never totally warm on him anyway. But then also you think about it, 
Ain't nobody getting cut here because no, well, you can't send Roy Nelson over to Bellator. You can't Come send on. Alistair Overeem over to Bellator either. And that's the thing. It's, it's a great time to be a kind of mid-level heavyweight in the UFC because, man, fuck around and do whatever you want to because they, they're not going to get rid of you. They need you. They need any kind of heavyweights they can, they can get. Plus, they're just not going to give that sort of ammunition to Bellator because they know Bellator would make great use. Can you imagine Roy Nelson over there in Bellator? They'd do some fun shit with him, man. Roy Nelson going to a Dave and Buster's in suburban Connecticut. Shit writes itself, man. Have him judge an eating contest. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, good time job security wise for USC heavyweights. Uh, it is one of those interesting fights, though. I think, like, the the heavyweight division has a lot of these where you can just kind of throw two guys in there together, and we all understand that this is a, a fight where uh, we're trying to see who has more left in the tank. Like, it seems like every other fight in the USC heavyweight division is one of those kind of, like, negative stakes kind of fights. But it's also still compelling. Yeah, I think you probably answered the, the, the question, who needs the win more? I probably answered the question, who could benefit more from the win? Uh, so there you go. Hot takes here on the co-main event. The podcast. hottest of takes. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner this of the screen that says email the podcast. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the Breakfast of Champions. That's the weekly newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Monday to, to Friday when we're not recording the podcast. Uh, it's good fun. You'll like it. Go sign up for that. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, well, this weekend, the kid, Anthony Pettis, the UFC lightweight champion, the possible spirit animal of the co-main event podcast, he'll be in action again, taking on Rafael Dos Anjos, or Dos Anjos. I got to make sure I say that right so we don't get more angry emails from our Brazilian listeners. I feel like you say it differently every time you say it. So you think we're still going to get emails? Yeah. Because the thing about the Brazilian fans, they will email you, not... Not in a nice way. Yeah, a lot you, of exclamation points in those emails, I find. You can't pronounce a guy's name correctly. RDA. Yeah. So the, Problem solved. This, this, I feel like, is an interesting fight. Uh, it's a perfectly serviceable main event for UFC 185 down there in Dallas, Texas, at the enormous American Airlines Arena, uh, just so nobody has to come to a press conference and ask when the UFC is coming to Dallas again for a while. Uh, it's, it's a perfectly serviceable main event. Uh, Dos Anjos, obviously a tough guy. Um, and a capable fighter. He's one, he's eight and one in his last nine. Uh, but at the same time, like, I think we all kind of know that like, this isn't the, he's not the number one contender that maybe we wanted in this spot. The UFC pretty much came out and said after Anthony Pettis beat Gilbert Melendez and they were shopping around for new challengers, they said that it would have been, would have been Habib Nurmagomedov, but he was still rehabbing his knee injury. So they decided to go with Dos Anjos instead. Uh, Nurmagomedov is going to fight, uh, Donald Cerrone, I think at UFC 189, uh, in May. Something like that. 187. UFC 187 in May. It's impossible to keep track of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely impossible. Uh, so, you know, we, we've got a fight here against 
a streaking challenger who who's a tough guy and a guy that I don't think you can count out in any fight. And yet uh, he's a guy that that just lost to Nurmagomedov last year and a guy that that we don't necessarily expect to beat Anthony Pettis. Pettis is going off at more than a four to one favorite across the board. Uh, but I feel like this is kind of a sneaky fight. Like Rafael Dos Anjos is a tough guy who, who could win this if he's able to fight his style of fight. You're right. It is a sneaky fight. And I also feel like it's one of those where, like you kind of alluded to at the top, a part of us just, even though we all recognize that Dos Anjos is really, really good. We just don't really want him as our champion right now. He's just not as like enigmatic or like charismatic and, and, and electrifying a presence as Anthony Pettis is because you do get the feeling, especially lately when you're watching Anthony Pettis, like, oh, this guy may be one of the best fighters in all of MMA. Like he he's the champion we can all agree on. Yeah. At he, lightweight. Absolutely. And one of the most competitive divisions. So you, you see the kind of stuff he's doing. You're like, wow, he can just kind of do it all. Uh, and so I think that some part of us, always wants to just like, let's stick with that guy and see what kind of other amazing shit he can do. Right. The only problem with him has been that he hasn't been able to fight often enough for, for our liking, uh, due to injuries and stuff like that. So, uh, I think that this is one of those where everyone is kind of expecting Anthony Pettis going to go in there, roll over RDA, do something at least semi spectacular in the process. And the legend of Anthony Pettis will only grow from there, which sounds like the perfect recipe for some disastrous shit to happen there. Yeah, uh, I have actually have a piece on Bleacher Report right now about why it's so hard to imagine Dos Anjos as the UFC lightweight champion. And I think part of it is exactly what you were talking about, that like we waited so long for Anthony Pettis to get healthy. And then when he beat Ben Henderson by first round armbar to win the title, it kind of felt like the division at large, the entire division had gotten a new lease on life. You know, the last two champions, Ben Henderson and Frankie Edgar, uh, were both guys that a lot of people liked and a lot of people would watch fight but they were both kind of like decision artists and now all of a sudden you've got this young flashy cartwheel kick and jump off the cage like a ninja as you'll see a million times this week in highlights uh you know, with the uh, custom suits and the gold chains showing up fresh from the barber shop, seems like the the lightweight champion we all want. And now that he's healthy and and this is this second defense of his title will really be his chance to get on a roll. We want to see how high he can fly. And that's not true of Rafael Dos Anjos. Like he's a guy that despite his eight and one record in his last nine, despite being in the UFC for more than six years, which is kind of crazy to reckon with. He's still a guy that seems kind of anonymous to me and like a guy that has not done or at least has not had a lot of luck uh, in separating himself from what is a very crowded pack of contenders in the 155 pound division uh, and it was weird I even watched the countdown show this week for UFC 185 because uh, I wanted for the express purpose that I was like okay I'll watch this maybe I'll learn something new about Rafael yeah. Dosanjo. who is this guy nothing nothing man there's just like he and pettis they you know split up split equal time pretty much for their little segment there and and like most of the stuff about pettis is also doesn't really go outside the training room except you do get the the backstory that pettis used some of the money from the melendez win to buy his mama house and a car and like there's footage of that so that's nice but pettis is a guy that we're already acquainted with so 
you, know, you don't count, have to sell us on Pettis. Countdown does not bear the burden of introducing us to Anthony Pettis. It bears the burden of introducing us to Rafael Dos Anjos, and you get nothing about Rafael Dos Anjos's like personal life or what kind of guy he is. It's all just you know he tra- he changed his strength and conditioning regimen. Okay, he trains at King's MMA. Huh. He's a tough dude. Wait, uh, let me ask you this: Is he a hard worker? He's a he's a hard nose. Seems like a hard nose good guy. Doesn't necessarily light up the interview segments, but again, he's doing them in a second language, which is better than I could do. Frankly, yeah, okay, but let me offer a a counter example to to make a point here. Your boy Nurmi, Habib Nurmagomedov, the right. guy we actually do, I think, are sitting around waiting to see him fight Anthony Pettis. He'll also, you know, he learned English pretty quickly uh, and and pretty recently, and is still obviously not, you know, a hundred percent fluent with this. Way better than either of us are with any foreign language. Um, but he his personality still manages to come through a lot. Yeah, like it's not that that's that's not an insurmountable barrier, and I think that's the one we're really waiting for. I mean, not only does he have that win over Rafael dos Anjos, but you know when he was in uh, in Vegas for Pettis's last title defense against Gilbert Melendez, where he's showing up at the press conference and throwing out kind of awkward callouts uh, from the wings there, and it's awesome. And you're like, okay, this is the kind of stuff that people can get into. Um, so I don't know if we can just say like, hey, you know. The, the language barrier is a problem with Rafael right. Dos Anjos. Have you been in the UFC for almost six damn years and we still just feel like we don't know who the hell you are? At some point, I got to feel like that's on you, man. Right. When you come away with the impression that he's probably kind of a private guy and definitely sort of unassuming. And like, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's also not going to give you, that's not going to separate you from Nurmagomedov and Donald Cerrone and Benson Henderson. Walking out there with a crazy furry hat and shit, man. How are you going to beat that? <laughs> exactly. So we come into this fight. Like, I guess assuming Anthony Pettis is going to win, although I don't know if those assumptions are all based on actual fight stuff. But like, do you think Rafael Dos Anjos can pull this off? I mean, in the in the Melendez fight for like a round and a half or so, Melendez had decent luck clinching Anthony Pettis against the cage, uh, kind of trying to work his wrestling, doing his game plan, which you would think would be a similar strategy that Dos Anjos would, would want to do. Can he pull that off or does that just give the champ too much too much of an opportunity to land one of those strikes because Dos Anjos wins 48% of his fights by decision, which if you're in there with Anthony Pettis for 25 minutes, it's a long damn time. It is. I mean, he can grind. We've seen that. You know, he can he can uh, really settle down in there and wear guys down. And he also has power. I mean, he knocked out Benson Henderson, so you know that he can always uh, put his hands on you and hurt you. But I, I do think that uh, if you just have to keep coming at Pettis over and over again, like you said, for, for 25 minutes, eventually he's going to catch you with something. Uh, I think that that's kind of the the way that Anthony Pettis uh, wins this fight is that, you know, Rafael Dos Anjos has got to come at him, bro. And when you come at him, that's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, you know what I remember really now when you mentioned that Rafael Dos Anjos has been in the UFC since 2008. I remember now I was at his UFC debut uh, and where he fought Jeremy Stevens on the undercard of UFC 91. And what I remember was that he was pretty much uh, dominating that fight. Do you remember this one? No, man, but you're also talking about double-digit UFCs. So that's right. That's a long time ago. Really dating myself yeah. there. I was at that one. He was he was winning that fight clearly, uh, and it looked like it was just going to go to the. It was kind of a boring fight. It looked like it was going to go to the judges. He was going to win, and then started the third round. Jeremy Stevens winds up like he's throwing a ball from right field to home plate. Like Everyone sees it coming, and Dos Anjos just kind of gets caught in the headlights there. 
blam, gets blasted out and ends up, you know, getting knocked out in a fight he was clearly going to win. Kind of a heartbreaker for him. Yeah, well, he lost his first two UFC fights, actually, Jeremy Stevens and Tyson Griffin. And then for a while there, he had the thing where he would win a few, lose one, lost to Clay Guida, then he beat George Sotteropoulos, then he lost to Gleason Tebow. So I don't know, that that's a good, you know, first three years in the UFC where more wins than losses. Well, no, actually, same number, four and four, right? Starts out. Uh, and then, uh, then he goes on his tear where he wins eight and one. But I wonder if part of this is that he's still kind of trying to trying to distance himself from, you know, just being 500 in his first handful of appearances. And then when well, you don't give us a lot to go on personality wise, uh, you know, the, maybe the, the bad smell of that start is going to hang around longer than if you used to wrestle a bear as a child. Like, yeah. For instance, like Nermy. I also got to feel like, uh, you know, while Habib Nurmagomedov is a mouthful and Nurmi is kind of a, a, a catchy little thing we can remember him by, if you're a Brazilian fighter trying to stand out from other Brazilian fighters, Rafael Dos Anjos might be like the worst name you can possibly have because it just sounds like a mashup of other Brazilian fighter names. Yeah, like it, it sounds like the 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 create a fighter thing in a in a video game would just like auto create Rafael Dos Anjos. Well, and that's kind of the thing with him, man. Like he's kind of he's got this sort of run of the mill Brazilian name. He's got Paulo Tiago's flat top haircut, and it's like it's kind of hard to differentiate him from everybody else except that he's the dude with the giant squid tattooed on his arm. Like that's. That's how you pick him out of the lineup. I wish people could be here and see your haircut while you're trying to talk about another man's flat top. <laughs> I got kind of a Paulo Tiago thing going on yeah, you right do. now. You I'm do. not gonna I'm not gonna lie, but you know what? The in laws gonna love it. Yeah, they're, they're gonna, gonna be say, like, oh, this guy does have a job. That's right. He look doesn't at, just record funny podcasts. Look at how clean guy, cut guy. clean cut this guy is. Classic haircut. Well, speaking of clean cut, Sir Nigel Longstock is here, and he is gonna lead us in another game of Master Tweet Theater, and that starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am well. Yeah, you you know, it's been a while since we've seen you. What have you been up to? Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. Last night, I attended a rare performance at the Missoula VFW by a Mr. David Bowie. Wow, that's weird. I was, you know, it's weird. I was at a similar performance of a David Bowie cover band. You know what? What? You, never. No, I didn't just, I didn't say anything. What? Um, anyway, uh, I did not realize you were a veteran of foreign wars, but that is, that is good for us all to know. Oh, yes, sir. I fought in all the good ones. Okay. Well, uh, do you have a theme for Master Tweet Theater this week? Yes, sir, I do. The theme is, it's all in how you read it. Chad, I, I feel like Sir Nigel is trying to set himself up with easier themes to stick to and also still somehow failing. I just imagine he has a big whiteboard at home with a bunch of potential themes written on it, and he just picks one at random before he comes over. Do you think he's also using that whiteboard to try and solve, like, cold case murders? <laughs> yeah, he's got his whiteboard and his bulletin board. Maybe he's even, I don't know, keeping track of how tall he is on the whiteboard. <laughs> well, that would be an insane thing to do. Okay, go ahead. Each notch has Sir Nigel written next to it. <laughs> I live alone. <clears throat> Tweet the first. I shall read it two ways. And then perhaps you will appreciate the theme. Perhaps. Mm -mm, one hopes. Tweet the first way number A. 
WTF? Everyone is fucking on PED. Fucking cheating ass motherfuckers. Is that why they're so good? Fucking pussies. Okay, that's that's way number one. <clears throat> Interpretation the second. What the fuck? Everyone is fucking on PED. Fucking cheating ass motherfuckers. Is that why they're so good fucking pussies? Okay, you do have a point. Now I appreciate what you're doing there. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, I also happen to know this one. That's Kendall Grove. Oh. I'm impressed that you know that. Do I have to guess or can I just say Kendall Grove? No, you can't say Kendall Grove. Okay. Um, do I still have to guess? You seem pretty sure. I'm just right. I'm right. Okay, Tell him I'm right. I will abstain. It is. It is Kendall Grove upset about performance enhancing drugs and or watching Brazzers.com. Yeah. Okay. You know, I got to give it to you there, man. You're you, the the uh, emphasis on different words really did make a difference. And now I assume the theme will proceed to fall just right the hell apart. That's the theatricalist touch, sir. I've demonstrated it in schools and playgrounds across America. <clears throat> Tweet the second. Fact at Reebok, Russia number one brand. Everyone love Reebok. Thumbs up emoji. <laughs> I'm gonna say that's your boy Nurmi. Yeah, Habib Nurmagomedov. Yes, I will concur. It is Habib Nurmagomedov shilling for Reebok and/or just angling for an opportunity to shill for Reebok. Is this true, by the way, that anybody fact checked this claim about uh, Reebok being Russia number one brand? I called Vladimir Putin, and he told me to fuck myself. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. <clears throat> Tweet the third. Funny how Bellator's promoting they have an injunction against me. I never received any paperwork. There is no injunction. Just jokes. What the hell is Sir Nigel trying to pull here, Chad? <laughs> I don't know. Does Does that one have a different meaning? According no. to how you read it? No, no it, it only suggests that the person tweeting it lives in a strange fantasy world where a lawsuit is a joke. I, well, I mean, that's that's Quentin Ramon Jackson. That is. That is your boy, Quentin Rampage Jackson. How many uh, how many of these joke lawsuits do you think Rampage has dealt with over the course of his career? Because, I mean, at some point, that joke, it's not funny anymore, is it? He who laughs last laughs longest in a penitentiary setting. <laughs> <clears throat> you can come to jail for losing a lawsuit, right? Asking, yeah, sure, sure. Asking for a friend. Or at least at least debtor's prison. Hmm. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. WTF! Where is my hotel? Fuck you, Ropungi! What? WTF! Five exclamation points. Where is my hotel? Fuck you, Ropungi! Okay, so it's somebody in Japan... Uh, I guess in the, the Rapongi district. The Six Trees district. Popular with tourists and other foreign nightlife enthusiasts. Yeah, I didn't even know anybody actually stayed there. Who, who would be over there in Japan messing around right now, Chad? Who would that be? And sending out, like, profanity-laced tweets. Yeah, which doesn't go with the other people I would think of as, like, the people who might just be in Japan at any given time, like Josh Barnett or Roxanne Montefiore. Right. Because, I mean, this sounds like a Matt Mitrione, but, like, he wouldn't be over in Japan. No, that'd be weird. I'm surprised you went straight to Matt Mitrione there. Um, shit, this is kind of a stumper, man. Yeah. This compared to the other ones. Yeah. Uh, Michael Bisping? Fuck it. 
I don't know. That doesn't that doesn't read as Bisping to no, me. No, no, it doesn't. Uh you know what? I'm gonna go Matt Mitrione. Why not? Okay. Both fine guesses, both clearly grounded in desperation, and both wrong. It is the poet Philip Baroni. Oh, God, God damn it! He Even he. Have known that. Yeah. Even he can be dazzled by the bright lights of the Ropungi. <laughs> you really like saying that, don't you? Ropungi or Nandeiru? Did you, uh, did we get any follow up on, uh, did Phil Baroni find his hotel? Is he doing okay over I assume, there? You know, he did he sent not, out a search party. He did not tweet that he was dead, so I assume he is alive. Okay, alright. <clears throat> tweet the fifth. I will tell you whom this tweet is directed to, and you shall tell me who tweeted it. Okay, that's <clears> a twist. <throat> At Tito Ortiz. Good day, Tito. I'm a big fan from Down Under. In my opinion, you made MMA and UFC to what it is today. Congrats on all your success. True role model. I know this one. That's Tito Ortiz. Tito Ortiz tweeted that. What? Wait a second. Like, by mistake? Yes. Well, this has been around for a while. I saw this one kicking around the internet uh, a while back. Where supposedly people think that this is the the smoking gun that Tito Ortiz is like trying to make up like fake fans on Twitter to write to him. Only he messed it up so that he tweeted it like to himself from his his account. Yes. Well, you know it is tough. I've heard to run a parody account. These kind of pitfalls do happen. I mean, I wouldn't. It wouldn't be insane to think that he was trying to like retweet an actual person or something, and he screwed it up. But as usual, it just it wouldn't be a Tito Ortiz uh, news item if there weren't something like vaguely embarrassing about it. All right. Well, I will take your word for it again. It is. It is Tito Ortiz. And for the record, only a supreme genius could run the Twitter account of a fictional character. <laughs> I see. I see what you – well, uh, I want it noted for the record that though this was an incredibly easy Master Tweet Theater, I fucking crushed it. And you, you barely did a damn thing, Chad. Barely even had a chance to play over there with Mr. Oh, I know this one jumping in every just, five Just seconds. sit back and watch how it's done. Uh, I guess that's it for Master Tweet Theater. So, Nigel, what do you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just wrapped filming on an exciting project about a group of lovers in Prague who must conduct their affairs under the watchful eye of the Soviet government, all while being vaguely creepy. I see. And what's it called? It's called The Unbearable Lightness of Being John Malkovich. Uh-huh. And what do you play? I play a young, bald Vaslav Havel. Get the hell out of here. Well, that was Sir Nigel Longstock, and that was Master Tweet Theater. Thank you, sir. Chad, here's a couple things I expect to happen in the UFC 185 co-main event. One, Carla Esparza is going to walk out to some awesome heavy metal shit all while looking like, you know, a terrified food vendor that somehow went through the wrong door and found herself uh, walking to the cage instead of up in section 102C trying to sell some hot dogs. Right. What'd she walk out to last time? Some old school Metallica? I think it was some old school Metallica. Some, some Master of Puppets yeah. era, maybe yeah. Injustice for All surprise. era Surprise. A good surprise. Yes. Uh, two, uh, the commentators and Bruce Buffer are going to get the challenge of their fucking lives saying Joanna Jajajic nailed it. 
over and over and over again. I feel like we're just, we're going to be able to see Bruce Buffer popping sweat on his forehead just with the anxiety over this one. Have you seen those, uh, introduction cards that Bruce Buffer sells on, like either sells or donates to charity online? You can buy, at least for the, uh, the Anderson Silva Nick Diaz card, you could buy the, the like blue card that he holds in the octagon. Because of course you'd want that. Uh, covered with copious notes. I might add. And in fact, do you remember this? Do you remember how uh, Bruce Buffer always says Diaz whenever he introduces okay, yeah, Nick Diaz? I do. That's written on the card to say it that way, to not say Diaz, but to say Diaz. So I suspect when it comes to Joanna Yajajic, Yendratric, he's going to have, he'll have some, some spark notes, some cheat sheet action going on. He'll have the whole thing written on the face of his watch. You know, now now that uh, you tell me this, I think it's possible Bruce Buffer is overthinking that job. Well, he is the most animated. What is he, like, the most exciting? He bills himself as something, like the most exciting uh, announcer in combat. I don't know. I'm sure he bills himself. He's going to have Yendre Trick written down on that card, though. Well, okay, so what we have here is, you know, the women, the newly created Women's Strawweight Championship. As you mentioned, it seems like the UFC is not that enthusiastic about Carla Esparza as a person, uh, or at least way more enthusiastic about a bunch of other women's strawweight fighters on the roster, and even some of them who aren't on the roster yet. You see Dana White tweeting out pictures, everybody, you know, getting really excited about everybody else, and you think, like, wait a minute, you do have a champion here, right? Like, what about her? Uh, yeah, it's weird, and it's like, I think you said it right, it's not that they seem uh, unexcited about Carla Esparza, it's just like that they seem more excited about other strawweights, and indeed that even carried through back into the season of The Ultimate Fighter, where it seemed like the UFC was really into Rose Namajunas, right? Like we heard reports trickling out that there was a quote unquote Ronda Rousey on the on the cast of this season of the Ultimate Fighter. And yeah, we like, largely assumed that they meant Thug Rose, uh, who's super easy to like, by yes. the way. Like you can totally understand why the UFC would be into to her prospects. The UFC seems to be totally into Paige Van Zant, and Paige Van Zant just got the big uh individual Reebok sponsorship. Uh although I think we're still very much in the midst of, midst of sorting out exactly what that means yeah. for all these people that that have them, but we know that only big time people have them. Uh, so it's it's more of like a status symbol at this point than anything else that we know of. But as far as we know, Carla Sparza doesn't have one, and Paige Van Zant does have one. And then, as you mentioned, Dana White uh, sort of breathlessly tweeting about the performance of Alexa Grasso uh, last weekend's Invicta show. It does kind of feel like it's hard not to notice that. There's a lot of talk going on about everyone except the champion, uh, which if you're Carlos Barza, I'm sure you notice that too. Yeah, and she has noticed it if you hear her in interviews. What I wonder is, you know, what's what's the problem with Carla Esparza, uh as from the UFC's perspective? Is it is it fighting style that you know she's a, she's a wrestler, not the flashiest fighting style you can imagine? Uh, is it that they don't think that she's one of the pretty girls who's going to draw the the big sponsors and everybody wants to, to uh, uh, put their money behind her? I don't know. But I mean, I feel like you could really work with this if you're Carla Esparza, um, because if you're the one who can just be like, all right, cool, you can, you can dance in front of, uh, your, your sweet ass Hummer in the driveway with your hula hoop or whatever. I'll just be over here kicking everybody asses. That'd be kind of awesome. Uh, I wonder if, you know, she seems to be kind of being cool about it for right now. I, I think that, that the way to go with that was to be, 
all the way over the top about how pissed off you are about being overlooked and then just beat the shit out of everybody. That'd be kind of a cool move. That would be. That would be a totally cool move. And you would think, I guess you would hope that it's fighting style and, and nothing else that uh, but come on. has led Carlos Barza to be kind of overlooked. I agree with you that if she could be uh, just kind of like a smasher of worlds, then that would be an awesome gimmick for her to have. She might have to go away from the cookie monster as her, well, okay. her nickname because – you know, one of the most uh, surprising things about her walking out to that old school Metallica song is that you did not get that vibe from Carla Sparza leading up to that. You mean when she, when the, the pre-fight video package showed her at her ladies' night, like toasting her friends with Chardonnay? Right. And yeah. And then she comes out to some injustice for all shit. You don't get a complete badass in your face vibe from Carla Sparza. Um, so maybe that would be a good direction to go. I mean, first of all, she's going to have to get by Joanna Yendretrick, who in a certain way, it kind of does have a badass I-will-get-in-your-face uh, personality. Like, she had the uh, the stare down in her last fight uh, with, I believe, Claudia Gadela. There you go. They had, like, kind of a, a an intense stare down, and then uh, they had a pretty good fight that, that uh, Yen Jae Chick ended up winning by split decision. Now here she is, number one contender. She's undefeated, 8-0. She's got a striking style. Uh, she could turn out to be a, an interesting test. I don't know. Yeah, but doesn't this kind of tell you something about where the women's strawweight division is in the USC, like both in terms of their priorities and just in terms of like grooming the division to get it to where they want it? Because you have uh, Yin Jae-chik coming in. Uh, she's won two fights in the UFC, both decisions, the one over Claudia Gadelia, split decision, a really close one that, that could have gone the other way. Uh, and that's enough to punch your ticket for a title shot. It kind of seems like right now the UFC is saying – you know, we're just kind of, we're waiting. We're waiting until Paige Van Zant's ready. We're waiting until Rose Namajunas can get a couple and come back. We, you know, they don't really feel, it doesn't feel like they think that the women's strawweight division is in full blast off mode yet, that we're kind of killing time here. And hey, you can throw it on a, uh, a card with another title fight and it'll allow you to say two title fights, $60, pay us, fuck you. Uh, and. <laughs> You know, and they, they like that appeal. Other than that, it doesn't seem like, you know, they really feel super pumped about it yet, does it? Yeah, it's so fledgling, just kind of getting off the ground. Obviously, it's a pretty shallow division so far, talent-wise. They kind of... Uh, but it shouldn't be. I mean, there's a bunch of talent out there. Like, right. it just seems like you're waiting for it to mature somehow, like a fine wine, if you will. Right. Uh, well, I remember when they first announced that they were going to do this strawweight division, like, it was, it created a lot of an excitement and a lot of buzz, and we found out they were going to do the season of the Ultimate Fighter, and... And we thought that that was going to be a really good season because it was going to have top-level professionals on it. But the announcement itself of Strawweights did kind of come out of the blue. It wasn't as though people were, like, beating the door down, being like, when is the UFC going to add 115-pound women? Like, uh, you you would have thought that maybe 145 pounds was, you know, a division that had a little bit more history. So I don't know, man. When Like, when they did, you know, announce that this was the direction they were going, it it – it kind of came out of the blue, so I guess maybe we shouldn't be surprised that it's still sort of a work in progress. Yeah, I think it came out of the blue for some people at the UFC, too, because I, I talked to some people there uh, who said, like, after they made that announcement, and I think I made that same point, like, wow, I kind of didn't see that coming right now. And they were like, yeah, neither did we. It was just kind of a thing of like, hey, we're adding a women's division. Which one should it be? And they kind of did the math on it, and I think correctly said 115 because, you know, if you if you do 125, then you just see a bunch of women's bantamweights drop down to get the hell away from Ronda Rousey. Uh, and 115 has a, you know, can kind of pull from both directions there and has a bunch of talented fighters there already. Uh, I, I think though that, like, it does seem like we're still, 
we're we're waiting to to see that thing that's going to get us really excited about the women's strawweight division. And I also feel like uh, we want to see just like more fights just in general with the women's division because I feel like we go a few cards and we don't really see any women's fights, and then we kind of remember, oh yeah. That's right. Like, I think you need to do it just more consistently just to get people to, to think about it more. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and you know, the, the best thing I can think you can do for either of these divisions is, is to try to promote them as normal divisions and not necessarily like, you know, it's just the Ronda Rousey show at 135 and then at Strawweight, you're just waiting for uh, Paige Van Zandt to get enough fights to, to see if you can get her to, to win the title. I think that you have to actually have to has a, have a robust and healthy division just like you do, you know, in almost every other weight class in order for this this thing to work. That's, you know, that's how it's always been in this sport. It's never really been uh, divisions built around just one personality. So uh, that still feels a little awkward to me too. I don't know. Yeah, I bet it does. Let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then uh, then we'll go on to round number three. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me? for this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you've noticed, but UFC middleweight Vitor Belfort has uh, been in the news Complaining about how much more often he's been drug tested than UFC middleweight champion Chris Weidman. Huh. That seems. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why that would be. Why he would yeah. be tested more what often? Because it seems like they'd mm. both be. Are you fucking kidding me, Vitor? Come on, man. You know. You know why, Vitor. You know why. We all know why. You fucking kidding me? We know why. Man, this week my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to the cruel, cruel MMA gods, first of all, for forcing Ben Saunders out of his impending bout against Eric Silva in Brazil, and secondly, for somehow forcing Josh Koscheck in despite the fact that he just got choked damn near unconscious against Jake Ellenberger just like last week at UFC 184. God damn it, we... We went from talking about whether or not Josh Koscheck should hang him up to now turning around and we're going to have to talk about Josh Koscheck's next fight, I guess, next week. And it strikes me that this is a fight where there can't possibly be a winner, just because if Silva wins, then you've got Josh Koscheck plummeting to a fifth straight loss. That's right, I said fifth straight loss. And if Josh Koscheck wins, it means that Eric Silva has pretty much lost property, that he's going to go on doing this thing where he wins one and loses one for the rest of his career, just as he has done since 2012. Are you fucking kidding me? Doesn't this feel like this is Josh Koscheck saying, hey, I want to get that last fight on my contract out of the way and then move on with the rest of my damn life? Wow. Well, that's sad, man. That's a sad thing to think. Like You I, just can't wait. I, that's what I think. Wow, okay. It's like, you know, you ever given like your two weeks notice at a job and then as soon as you do that, you just your your job performance just falls off a damn cliff? I think it might be one of those kind of things. Interesting. Well, that, that's an interesting angle. I like the way you're thinking about that. Uh, right now, though, we are going to move on to round number three. Sitting in front of the TV screen well, Ben, it could be a possibility that both Johnny Hendricks and Matt Brown have uh, a mutual need this weekend at UFC 185, and that is that they both need to get that loss to Robbie Lawler off the top of their record. 
both these guys come in for off losses from the uh, to the UFC uh, welterweight champion, I guess you could say. Uh, and for for Matt Brown, I guess beating Johnny Hendricks would be the quickest way to get back to the top of the contender list. And for Johnny Hendricks, this just seemed like a fight he could take while he was killing time, waiting for Robbie Lawler to get healthy so they could have their third fight and complete the trilogy. Of course, in the interim, we've had Robbie Lawler announced uh, for a fight against the Red King. Waterboy. Rory McDonald. Uh, I believe that fight is at UFC 189. Uh, sure. Whatever. So I don't know, man. Did Johnny Hendricks make a mistake here taking this fight against Matt Brown? Or does the fact that he is almost a four to one favorite mean that he's just going to blow through this one and it's going to be no harm done? Well, I don't know if he's going to blow through this one, but I'm going to say not a mistake for Johnny Hendricks. I think that he needs a fight like this. Uh, I don't know if you really can roll into the, the trilogy fight with too much momentum right now if you're Johnny Hendricks. I mean, especially the way uh, that that last fight with Robbie Lawler ended. It just kind of seemed like uh, Johnny Hendricks kind of ran out of gas. He seems like he what he could really use right now is to show up in Texas, uh, go out there and starch uh, somebody, a, a tough dude like Matt Brown, and remind everybody, oh, yeah. Johnny Hendricks is kind of a fun fighter to watch, uh, and not to mention a bit of a knockout artist. I think like, that would be a great thing for him. And then if you look at Matt Brown, I mean, this would definitely be the biggest win of his career, right? If he could beat former UFC uh, uh, interim champion or whatever. Uh, was he ever interim champion? No. No, he was just a, just well, he, a he, straight up regular welterweight champion. He beat Robbie Lawler at UFC 171. Oh, that's right. When the, that's right. And the title and, was vacated when George St. Pierre had to go on walkabout. Uh, that's right. Where George St. Pierre went on his vision quest. Uh, and, you know, the guy who arguably beat George St. Pierre. Like, if Matt Brown could go in there and beat him, uh, that would be pretty huge in like a bit of a career resurrector for Matt Brown, who we kind of thought of as the guy who was constantly overperforming a little bit. And we were just kept waiting for him to get brought back down to earth. Uh, and I think that, you know, in that Robbie, his Robbie Lawler fight, he lost, but I, I think he surprised some people just by hanging as tough as he did. I wonder if we're, if we've come around on Matt Brown yet, is, are we ready to stop thinking of him as that tough dude who somehow does better than we think he should do? Uh, and are ready to start thinking about him as like right there among these elite welterweights who all, uh, within one, one or two swings of the title at any given moment. Uh, it depends on how this one goes. I think if he, if he loses, a one-sided lopsided drubbing or, or by a crazy knockout or something to Johnny Hendricks, then he'll have back-to-back -back losses. I think we're, we're more likely to just kind of remand him back to the, to the realm of people like Eric Silva and Mike Pyle, who, you know, his last wins. I'm surprised a little bit to hear you say you feel like Johnny Hendricks needs this one just because some of the stuff that you just talked about, like he did come out of that George St. Pierre fight at UFC 167 with a lot of people feeling like he won that fight. Then, you know, he, he split two meetings with Robbie Lawler, both of them good, exciting fights and very close fights. His loss was a split decision. Uh, I don't know, man. I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at that re resume and and feel like Johnny Hendricks needed to go out and prove anything in order to score that third fight with Robbie Lawler. I feel like that would be the obvious move and the right thing to do. Do you think that this was a situation where uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, he was told that like maybe he needed to do something in order to get that third fight? Because this was a surprise seeing him kind of, uh, I guess, step up, if you would, uh, to take Matt Brown. Well, to me, it seemed like the third fight was more obligatory than anything. Like it was, okay, we don't have a, like a huge great idea at welterweight that we're dying to do uh, for the title fight. 
they did split two fights, so damn it, I guess we, we do the math on it and it says trilogy fight. It didn't feel like there was just so much like driving enthusiasm. We were like, fuck yeah, let's go. We need to see another one between these two. Um, so I, I do think it would be good for him to go out there and go and basically do what Robbie Lawler did after losing uh, his decision, which is go beat some people, then come back around with a full head of steam with everybody kind of hot on you. Uh, and that brings a lot more excitement to the fight, I think. I also think you, you have to consider the financial possibilities there for Johnny Hendricks that, you know, he was out for a while with that bicep injury. He's not making any money. He's got that deal with Team Takedown where, he, where even now that he's, you know, up there at the top, he's still giving him half his money all the time. So you probably feel at some point like you can't wait around anymore. You need to go out there and, and get a paycheck. And I don't know if you could knock out a guy like Matt Brown in Texas, that'd be kind of a fun way to do it for Johnny Hendricks, wouldn't it? Yeah, maybe a pragmatic decision more than anything else. And you're right, I guess, to, to point out that, you know, while I was kind of excited to see Robbie Lawler and Johnny Hendricks fight for a third time, their first two fights certainly did give the impression that they were totally capable of fighting for another 25 minutes and not producing a clear-cut victor, at which point... I don't know what you do there. I guess the guy who wins two or three just just moves forward. But like we're left with the feeling that those guys are kind of in a dead heat. Yeah, and I'm I not sure that a third fight necessarily solves that. Although I guess it would in a strictly win loss type if way. The, I think what we do. I think the unified rules say that if the third fight is also close, then they both uh, get down and call to a stray dog. And uh, whoever the dog goes to, that's the rightful UFC welterweight champ. That seems about right. That seems like it's something that could happen. I, the dog's an honest animal. Very intuitive. How about Rory McDonald, though, kind of falling ass backward into this title shot? Like the uh, Hector Lombard positive drug test. Kind of an awesome thing to have <laughs> yeah. happen for the Red King. Yeah. How about that? How about that? Uh, you know, I don't know. That's one of those where I feel like, you know, we saw, uh, Robbie Lawler and, and the Red King, the water boy, Roy McDonald. Uh, we saw them do it once already. Um, I don't know. I feel like I look at this one on paper and I know, I, I think that Robbie Lawler wins that one all, all over again. It seems like I'm already, and I could be totally wrong about it, but it seems like I'm kind of looking ahead already seeing like, Okay, Johnny Hendricks probably going to beat Matt, beat Matt Brown. Robbie Lawler probably going to beat the Water Boy, and then we do it again, brother. Uh, and if that's how it goes, I mean, you think probably the UFC is thinking of it the same way. If that's how it goes, then I think you do have a trilogy fight with a lot of uh, momentum behind it. Although that is one of those where you're laying out your best case scenario, and how often does that actually happen? Yeah, almost never. Uh, how does Matt Brown win this fight? I feel like. Uh We've we've seen Johnny Hendricks get punched in the face really, really hard, hard really by hard. people like Robbie Lawler, uh, and Matt Brown is the kind of guy who who just kind of like refuses to be beaten and therefore eventually kind of guts out a victory. I'm not sure I see that working against a guy like Johnny Hendricks, a guy who uh you know is coming off a couple of five round fights and now uh is going to be back kind of in what might seem like a breeze for him in a, in a three round fight and a guy who himself has very heavy hands and is going to come in uh clearly with with better uh, wrestling, uh, better wrestling credentials, I guess you would say, than, than Matt Brown and probably better MMA wrestling too. Like this seems like a particularly tough draw to me for Matt Brown. Uh, I think he wins it by Gogo Plata. Interesting. Yeah. So you're just gonna, can, do you want to put a bet down on that or no. anything? Or you nope. just, just I'm so stuff? confident I don't need to bet on it. <laughs> it's just, all right. I mean, I guess I have to admire that, man. I have to admire the way you roll. I guess he could win it by decision just on, like, work rate, maybe. 
But no, I'm not. I don't feel confident that Matt Brown's going to win that fight. Aside from Gogo Plata. Well, aside, you know, if he can't, if some, for some reason, he can't pull off the Gogo Plata, then it might be bad news for him. Got to really go all in on that Gogo. All right. Well, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week since I feel like we are starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel here. Ben Folks coming out with his Gogo Plata predictions. You're going to you're going to feel like quite the fool on Sunday morning when everybody's talking about Matt Brown's sick Gogo Plata. That's yeah, you're right. I will. Yeah. I will feel like a fool. Yeah. There on Sunday morning. What's your just saying stuff for this week, dummy? Well, Chad, you know, this past weekend was a weekend where we didn't have any UFC event. It was kind of a nice one to have off, especially when you got a newborn uh, that you're kind of looking after there. And, and, and then I'm over there on the Twitter looking on my phone on Friday night, and I see basically everybody I follow on Twitter all talking about some damn RFA event. And then on Saturday, I see them all talking about some damn boxing event. And I'm just saying... Never do I feel more alienated from this entire weird little combat sports bubble we're in than when I see a bunch of people tweeting about combat sports events that I personally do not care about, and I feel like there is no escape. It'll follow you everywhere you go, and people will be talking about uh, you know, some fighters that you don't know or care about, and you start to wonder, my God, what have I done with my life? I'm just saying. Just saying, wow, kind of a downer just saying for you. Yeah. And well, yet, while you're feeling that way, you're just sitting there scrolling through your Twitter. Yeah. So kind of maybe you got to take some responsibility. I do have to take some responsibility. I'm just I'm just sitting there hoping that Ken Jennings has some funny shit he's going to tweet out. You know what? Also, like that when you feel that way, that's how all of the people who follow you who don't like MMA feel about you all the time. I know. Well, this is even more depressing. Thank you. Wow. Not to end on a down note, but Ben, maybe I'm a little bit slow on the uptake, but but this week when I saw finally the official UFC 185 poster and the fact that it actually says welcome to the show in it, that I realized maybe that the UFC's new hashtag slogan may actually be a play on Anthony Pettis' nickname. It might have been that the whole time, and I just didn't know it. And now that I know that, it makes me kind of nervous because I feel like, did we fucking learn nothing from UFC 46 Supernatural when the UFC named a pay-per-view after then light heavyweight champion Randy the Natural Couture? And the next thing you know, he gets his eyelid sliced open by the seam of Vitor Belfort's glove. And then we got to do the whole damn thing over again a few months later. It just seems like naming a pay-per-view after your champion is bad news so i'm just saying that for starters and i'm also just saying as a bonus just saying stuff Uh oh if you want to remind yourself how stacked every single ufc pay-per-view used to be go right now and just just take a look at the ufc 46 lineup because i'm not going to spoil it all the way for you i will just say that george st pierre fights carl parisian josh thompson fights hermes franca and matt Serra fights jeff curran all on the goddamn prelims back before those were even on tv you couldn't even watch those fights george st pierre <laughs> fights carl parisian i'm just saying Lee Murray was on that motherfucker, too. BJ Penn fights Matt Hughes in the goddamn co-main event on UFC 46. Frank Mir and crazy-ass Wes Sims? 
Although I will say UFC 185 uh, has UFC 46 beat on poster design. Uh, did kind of seem like we were making shit up and at the rented computer at the Kinkos uh, to, to make this one up. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Hashtag welcome to the show. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be off for 10 days, but we'll be back next Wednesday to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 185 and look ahead to whatever nameless UFC event is coming up that following weekend. Way to sell it. That one's in Brazil, right? That's Is that the one where Kostchak's going to be throwing down? Probably. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Man, UFC 46. Who would have thought that we'd be nostalgic for this one? I feel like putting welcome to the show on this poster is Rafael Dos Anjos' best chance. Yeah. Like, never before did I feel more hopeful that he could walk out with a victory, or at least, like, like it was more possible than when I saw that. I was thought, oh, my God. Pretty Tony. He just jinxed Pretty Tony. Yeah, now he's going to sprain his ankle trying to leave.